Hey everybody, welcome to episode 12 of the Slow Drag Has a Podcast 2. My guest today is Steve Everett. He's a longtime independent musician who really understands the value of building a community and taking everybody who's listening to his music along for the ride with him. If you missed it, you can head on over to the Slow Drag's band page where you can see Steve and I performing live on the internet together, swapping songs and telling stories. So if you enjoyed this podcast and you want a little sequel to the action, make sure to head on over to theslowdrag.com slash live. You can click on that flyer that's right there on the page and then check out Steve and I's broadcast. Really, really good time. As always, everything The Slow Drag does from the music to the broadcast to the podcast is brought to you by Patreon patrons. I want to give a shout out to Berkeley K and Felix Z. Thank you guys so much for becoming Patreon patrons of The Slow Drag. Love having you in the official Riot Squad. All right, here we go, guys. Episode 12. No, I've been, my buddy Andy Davis, do you know Andy? I don't know Andy. Is he in town? No, he was for a long time. Uh, he's a Louisiana guy, but he moved to uh, L.A. like a few years ago. And so he's, last year he wrote a song a week all year. So mm. 52 songs. Mm-hmm. And he released it to his Patreon patrons. Cool. Which I know you're, you're yeah, yeah, up to that. Um, but yeah, so it was basically just like he had to push himself to write and record a demo for a song every week, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of what he was doing. And then I guess halfway through the year, uh, we talked about it in May, and he was like, dude, this is, like, it initially was super fun, and it was a cool challenge, and then it became, like, uh, really annoying sometimes, and sure. just, like, hard to find time for, and then toward the end of the year, it reawakened this passion for songwriting for mm-hmm. him. And I guess, you know, because you have some good ideas up front, sure. and then once you get through them, it kind of turns into, like, you know, more of a slow drag than anything. Hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, then you get to, like, you know, the dog days of summer, and you're basically, like, having to struggle to find cool ideas. But mm-hmm. then I guess once you force yourself through that period, you know, there's some, some light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, absolutely. And then your creative brain kind of responds to necessity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like you can turn it on and off whenever you want. Right. And that's the reward for having the discipline to do something like that. Right. You've been in Nashville, what'd you say, eight years? Yeah, right at eight years. And so you up. must have done some stint of Nashville st- songwriting. Oh, town. man, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I still do it. Like, I'm gone half the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, it seems like I don't co-write just because I'm gone so much. Mm-hmm. But I end up, when I when I count back through the year, it's always like, oh, you snuck in 35 co-writes this year. Which, cool, yeah. You know. 35 four-hour blocks, you mm-hmm. know, is, is quite a bit of time for something that you don't really consider yourself to be right. a part of anymore. Yeah. It is cool, though, that whole songwriting vibe. I feel like when you first move here, if you're a songwriter, you get your, like, freshman class. Mm-hmm. And then inevitably one of those people will, you know, have some great success in, in some way, either as an artist or a writer. Sure. Uh, and then you kind of, you know, I feel like that's how people, you kind of get swept up in somebody else's wake. Hmm. and carried along with them, which I think happens to quite a few people. Um, but if that was the only positive thing that happened, then it would be worth doing it. But also, you just, you know, you get to to learn. You know, you're you're always around your own creative brain, you mm-hmm. know, when it's just you doing mm-hmm. your projects yeah. and, and sitting down with someone else and being like, okay, well, now for the next four hours, this person is equal to you. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to listen to their ideas as much as you listen to your own, <laughs> but you can't be as critical with theirs as you are with your own, you mm-hmm. know? Well, nope, that's you, terrible. you hope to get to that point, actually, I'd say. Uh, yeah, yeah, but still with a little more tact. <laughs> I... I've man, I, I'm a I'm a very quick self motivator, mm-hmm. but like I positively motivate everybody else, and I very negatively motivate myself. Hmm. How like can you give an example of that? So I used to uh, I'm like I'm like 215 to 220 pounds now, but uh, I'm 34 years old. When I was 24, I weighed 341 pounds hmm. at my heaviest, mm-hmm. and so I lost you know 141 pounds at my, at my lightest that's crazy uh around the same time that i moved out here mm-hmm. and just started i was just i was always fat from like birth until you know mid-20s and i realized like this is ridiculous you know and anytime somebody tries to give me too much accolade for for losing the weight i'm always like man i mean it was my fault you know <laughs> it was like i self-corrected yeah you know you definitely you, you can as as we do, especially I think as artists and creatives, blame ourselves for more than we should blame ourselves. But, yeah, you know. In that to... case, I feel like it's just accurate. Like I'm <laughs> the one that ate the food and didn't move. You sure. know? 
Yeah. And it's also accurate that you buckled down and worked really hard to do something For sure. that is extremely challenging. Yeah. Like, it's one thing to, like, you know, kind of lose 10 pounds or something when you don't necessarily yeah, yeah, yeah. need to either way. Right. But, like, a whole person. Yeah. Like, yeah. that takes dedication. Like a big middle schooler. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but I negatively motivated myself. Like, <laughs> when other people... Now, people reach out to me, because, I mean, this is, like, I was 25 years old, so mm -hmm. I was a grown man mm -hmm. uh, when I made this change, and so... There was a ton of people that I'd known my whole life mm -hmm. who saw me, you know, a year later and were like, oh, my gosh, you know, and, and they would ask me how I did it. And I would tell them, you know, my method and I've got everything screenshotted because people hit me up out of the blue now sure. from college and stuff. And like, hey, man, uh, I'm kind of struggling with this. And I love helping people. Mm -hmm. And I'm always like, you can do it. You know, just one day at a time, like one meal at a time. Like this is sure. the tricks that I used to use. But what I don't tell them is like, you know, <laughs> negatively motivating myself, you know, wanting to cheat on my diet late at night, you know, sure. and, uh, you know, th there's a cookie cake in the house that somebody else brought home and I just go to the bathroom and kind of jiggle my, my stomach like, <laughs> Oh really? Do you want to, do you want to eat this cookie cake? And it worked for me, but I'm also uh, like, I got thick skin mm -hmm. and you, you, I never want to put that on somebody else because sure. you know, you, you can, you can stand a lot of self deprecation that you couldn't stand coming from somebody else, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, because, you know, like you said before, you're always <laughs> in your own head. That might just be kind of normal, normal but loving talk, self-loving talk, a little yeah. tough love. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and eat that cookie cake, you fatty. <laughs> Stop. I won't, I Man. won't. Well, the way that my 30s are going, I might I might hit you up for some of that advice in a couple of years. We'll see. Dude, you're thin, man. You look, you look, you look toit. <laughs> Thank you. Very kind. Feel you're wearing a maroon sweater, sitting in a maroon leather chair. It's true, and you know what? While while we're getting the visual, I was like moving stuff around. Sorry, my the people at home they can't see, but you have to look at my beanie hair. I'm taking I love off it. my beanie. I actually didn't know that you had such long hair. <laughs> I don't. I just have I just have a rat tail. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh -huh. I, I used to have a mohawk, and okay. this is the remnants of the mohawk. That is this just like kept a Davy Crockett situation? You're trying to. <laughs> No, more, more, normally it's braided, so it's a little more Jedi. Okay. <laughs> David Jedi. <laughs> I like it. My, my, my buddy J.D. Iker, who I think is going to be on the podcast mm -hmm. soon, mm -hmm. um, he has these great, he's a big Star Wars guy, but he has this merch item that's genius, and it's Jedi Iker. It's instead of J.D. Iker. So I there's think the I saw tiny this. little E and I, yeah. so Jedi Iker. Uh -huh. it's, it's great. Oh, man. Wait, okay, so you do a whole lot of live performance, which means that you have probably cycled through your fair amount of merch. Oh, gosh, yeah. Have you had some favorites along the way? Right, man, and I've always, growing up for me, uh, I've known that this is what I was going to do, you know, being an artist, singer, songwriter. Mm -hmm. I've always, since I was like 10 years old, you know, I was like, Mom, Dad, can I drop out of, you know, fifth grade to focus on my <laughs> career? And they were like, no. <laughs> And I was like, I oh, just okay. don't understand, man. Yeah, and, and looking back, I'm sure they're like, actually, we could, we should have let him. Think about how, how good he'd be by now. Yeah. We didn't know he was serious. He's freaking ten. Um, I have no idea what you asked. Oh, you know what? That's fine. <laughs> we'll get we'll get back to that in later because because I do really want to talk about this. So few people, I think. Oh, merch! Um, I remember now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you do you do you want to go? I promise I didn't have a stroke. Um, <laughs> Happens to me all the time, man. There's like pressure when you're doing something like this and talking into a microphone. The podcast world. What? I wish I felt that pressure. I'm such a ham <laughs> that like this is. I imagine this situation all day for myself. Mm -hmm. Like I'll make a left turn. I'll be like, Steve, why'd you choose left today? <laughs> Anytime I walk into a movie theater and you go through that like you know that kind of tunnelish thing mm -hmm. next to the the higher seats. I always, like, in my mind, I hear, like, an announcer, like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Madison Square Garden for the first time, Steve Everett. And you've heard these voices in your head since you were 10 years old? Yeah. Yeah, without fail. It turns out they were wrong, though, because I've, I've never played uh, Madison Square Garden oh, yet. Yeah, life is, life is long. Life is long. <laughs> There's I plenty agree of with time. That. I'm doing a sober January and February right now. And February. So it, it seems extra long. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and I realized like uh, how good of a job like a couple glasses of red wine or a couple of glasses of bourbon they really just shut your mind off because mm -hmm. if you're a self promoter self you know 
employed sure. entrepreneur like you know you yeah. are as an artist mm-hmm. then there's just a million things you know and ideas and, and just flowing in your head oh yeah and it's definitely you know it's good i do this every year to start the year you know just last year i did 52 days hmm. uh, while i was making my new record and felt great and i was like man I'm, i just might as well round it up to 60 but i started thinking about it and i was like man in like 10 years i'm just not going to drink anymore <laughs> because the year will begin with a longer stint sure but maybe I'll start going back the other way, mm-hmm. and then by the time I'm 80, I'll just be a full-blown alcoholic again. <laughs> well, that's the time. That's the time to yeah. just do all the shit when right. you're too old to... Just too old to get arrested. <laughs> well, not too old to get arrested, but too old to get convicted. You know? Yeah, or care. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'll send, serve a life sentence in prison. It'll be the best two months of my life. <laughs> yeah, man, the, the merch thing, I, because I was involved so early, mm-hmm. knowing that I wanted to do this... Um, yeah, I just I had a, a rock band in high school, and then I had one all through college and a couple years afterwards, and then I went solo in like 2011. Mm. And so, I mean, I've had to, I've always been the one to book the shows and manage and do all that stuff, webmaster, mm. and design the merch. And so, like, you know, from my first band, we got our own screen printer, you know, and we're just like squeegeeing, you know, over the screens onto the mm-hmm. crappy T-shirts, like the hefty or whatever it was. Hefty brand Hanes sure. shirts, yeah. just so thick. Yeah. You could never wear them out. <laughs> and uh, some of some of my favorites, though, were the, the those shirts that I picked up in a thrift store or something like right. that. Yeah, you had to wash them like twelve times mm-hmm. just to get them to where they didn't <laughs> irritate your skin. Why am I wearing this cardboard shirt? Yeah, but there was nothing else out there like it. Yeah, one of a kind, dude. Well. I have since found uh, different fabrics, but I, def- I also don't. I don't do my own screen work anymore. Too sure. There was this dude in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. I lived down there for a couple years after college, and I uh, went to Appalachian State in North Carolina, mm. which is a great little mountain school. And I noticed that you said Appalachian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can call the mountain chain whatever you want. Just don't call it Appalachian. Yeah, Appalachian State University is a pronoun. <laughs> it's a name sure. of university, sure. and we say it. You know. Like it should be said. Yeah. If somebody yeah. tells you their name is David and it's spelled David, you don't go, no, you're incorrect. <laughs> you're incorrect, David. Yeah, but the, the, the deal with Appalachian, Appalachian, like it's spelled the same way. It is spelled the same mm-hmm. way. So is David. Yeah. Well, doesn't he have a, a, little, a little tilde? An accent Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that's the French one. Listen, you hear what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> I got gotcha. you. If Rackle, <laughs> Rachel's trying to go by Rackle, we have to call her Rackle. All right. Also, why would the third A sound after a consonant, consonant in Appalachian change? You know? Appalachia. There's no reason that that third A would just be a phantom A sound. This is how I know you went to college. Appalachian. Yeah. This a- is some... Appalachian. Maybe if you want to argue for a- Appalachian, I'm down. <laughs> I don't. No. But again, I don't, I don't ever correct anybody when they talk about the mountain chain. Really? Because down south is Appalachian, up, south, up north mm. is Appalachian. But mm-hmm. the mountain chain, I'm, I'm down for whatever. If you want to call it the Appalachian Trail instead of the Appalachian Trail, that's fine. But university's name is a pronoun. There it is. Yeah. So in college, what were you doing different with your merch? I think you were going into that. Yeah. So in college, we, uh, yeah, basically like, you know, if you have a band uh, with a bunch of members, then you are more logo based. So for a while, Mm -hmm. I was logo based with those Mm -hmm. first two bands Mm -hmm. and just getting the hang of, you know, how many different types of shirts you can keep track of and keep in stock and how much that costs. But basically, I mean, selling T-shirts, people think that, you know, you're making out like a bandit selling a 20 to $30 T-shirt. But really, when you start selling a merch item, you're not you're not making any money. Mm-hmm. You'd have to sell out and not buy more merch to make money. Sure. So basically, being an artist who offers merch at their merch store means you waved goodbye to five to $10,000 when you started being a musician. Hmm. And then if you're done being a musician, you cash out and sell every last T-shirt, then you finally get that profit. Hmm. But the whole time you're touring, you're just taking the money that you make from selling T-shirts and then dumping it back into buying more T-shirts to sell. Man, there's that discipline again. Right. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Do you now utilize uh, dropship order companies like uh, like Teespring or Cafe Press or anything like that? I haven't. I, I always keep my finger on that pulse mm-hmm. just to see like what's going on. And so far, nobody's nobody's innovated really really well unless you have just a ton of orders coming in Mm -hmm. in terms of like what the 
you know, what the commission is or what the uh, fees are for their service. Sure. Um, but I definitely, I'm always, you know, asking my other artist friends and stuff. Because the first, you know, Teespring is, is a company that does mm-hmm. campaigns. So you can design your own thing and offer it on a, a myriad of different, you know, mediums. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they're in charge of the printing and the fulfillment. But it's still kind of like campaign-based, almost like a crowdfunding mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And so if, when they switch, and I think they will, when they switch to just you design, you know, your merch, they send you a mock-up, you approve it, and then it's just for sale all the time. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, print it and ship it on demand. I, th- I think that'll be really valuable for us. They kind of do that now. Yeah. Teespring does? Uh-huh. I use Teespring for, for my merch when I'm not playing live shows. So I'll, yeah. I'll usually take something with me when I play live. But right. it, yes, you're right. They always do the campaigns. Right. So now what you can do is just set the campaign to start over. I guess my finger slipped off yeah. the pulse. So every time. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's just available for three days at a time every three days. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Only so you three days the every three days. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you yeah. always hit your minimum and, and get it shipped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a very esoteric uh, yeah. merch conversation. Well, I really like it because it gives me a chance to, you know, like you were talking about with your band, it's like, okay, I've got a handful of things that I want to put on shirts and I can do them a couple of different ways, which right. gives me X amount of designs. You can then put all of those designs out and see what people like, what yeah, they respond to, what the market dictate, and and then order something like that, which I really yeah. appreciate. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And I, I've kind of used you know Teespring in that way before um, as a tester, but I'll, I'll be happy when there's you know some kind of company that that really does quick fulfillment, and the fees aren't just beating you up, mm-hmm. and you know the website is cool, and there's a dedicated mobile app. So I'm sure something's coming yeah. like next month or something. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's as, as of right now, I still think there's a hole right there in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And then, you know, going solo after uh, my second band broke up, um, you know, when I moved out here, uh, you know, now it's just your name, you know? And so, like, I I experimented with that instead of having logos, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you put on a t-shirt? And I kind of like, you know, uh, other artists, everything is about the artist and about, like, you know, uh, supporting the artists and it's it's just promoting promoting, uh, us, you know? And so I was like, well kind of a cool spin my whole thing is like you know i i always joke that i don't have any fans i just have friends because hmm. like once you come to a show i'm i'm probably going to have hugged you mm-hmm. and we we're gonna have talked and so like now you're i can't call you a fan anymore i know your name and we've had like a conversation and we've hugged hmm. like now it's like you're a friend if i saw you again i'd be like hey what's up man thanks for coming hmm. so everybody that i in, in my orbit is just like if you're a fan, then you're just like a potential future friend, you know? Like, once I sure. come through your city and play, if you come to the show, we're probably going to be tight after that. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, man, I'm always telling people that I believe in them just because I think that's important in the world. And uh, so I just started making these T-shirts that say, Steve Everett believes in me. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, it's it's my name on there, but it's it's like promoting you. It's like a self-assurance, sure. you know, yeah, reassurance. And uh, Yeah. And those kinds of... Those kinds of uh, merch designs they're one of the hardest things to just sit down and cook up but when you're able to come up with something that celebrates the people who are supporting you and who are making your musical world go round right in a way that makes them feel included in that just by wearing this thing that's awesome i wish i could come up with those kinds of things left and right because yeah most of the time i'm making a shirt or something it's like there's my fucking face or my logo or right. <laughs> just the band name or whatever yeah man <laughs> which people like but yeah. you know if you can actually find a great way to celebrate the community that's head and shoulders above yeah well one i don't think anybody can just sit down and come up with great ideas one for the <laughs> other and you know i, I think that's all you gotta the... do is design a t-shirt a week for a year right yeah, yeah. and it. like four of them will be you know mm-hmm. fire and the rest of them will need to go in the fire yeah, I just, you know, life to me is is moments, and I, I really, I, I think we're struggling right now as a, as a society to uh, to find our way through this current moment where we're we're trying to recreate moments or stretch mm-hmm. them out. Mm-hmm. It just it just doesn't happen like that. You know, nothing. We're all worried that things are going to go bad or, or or hopeful that they're going to go well. Hmm. But it's so funny to me because nothing ever goes bad the way you think it's going to go bad. Sure. And nothing ever goes good the way you think it's going to go good yeah. or even well. Um, and so, like, you might as well not even worry. And you might as well not even have expectations. Like, I've kind of carved out this very flat line right down the middle hmm. that I live in emotionally. Mm-hmm. 
which kind of is a bummer when something exciting happens because I'm like, oh, cool, that'll be neat. You know, I kind of like manage my expectations because when it happens, like I'll still enjoy it and I'll have a great time. And I get to look forward to it, but I still keep myself just kind of a little bit guarded towards, um, you know, if, if you don't get your hopes up, you can't be let down. That's right. And then you get to keep, you know, just trying. You don't take it personally. Yeah. Nothing in the world is happening to you. Things are happening and you're alive. I agree with so much of that, especially the uh, the last little part you said. Um, I don't know where it was that I started um, trying to frame things without without any sort of agency. Like, I spilled coffee versus there is spilled coffee. Yeah, You know, yeah. that kind of a thing. Totally. Um, granted, like we were talking about earlier... I, I like like you fall into plenty of self-deprecation sure. and lots of things are my fault or not my fault whatever. Yeah. But looking out at the world and seeing occurrences instead of, you know, uh, assigning assigning some kind of power to those occurrences. Yeah. Um I don't know, it just makes it makes life a little easier to uh to navigate, especially when you're dealing with people and variables, things you can't plan. Right, and it keeps you on your toes, keeps you looking at possibility yeah. instead of looking at what you thought might happen or what you thought should have happened based on a person being involved. Right, living that blame-free life. Yeah, and then looking back and thinking like, well, what could I have done differently? Like, who cares? It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. You know, like you, you yeah. want to learn from your mistakes mm-hmm. for sure. But a lot of time, you know, if 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 things went bad for you a hundred times, mm-hmm. like maybe a handful of them would be your fault. Mm-hmm. You know, anything else is just you weren't the right fit for that thing. You know. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I carry that over to relationships. Hmm. I've been yeah. very lucky. Like, I've never cheated on anybody. I've never been cheated on. And that helps, you know, with what I'm talking about. But I've I've parted on pretty good terms with everybody I've ever dated mm-hmm. because of, you know, like, well, nobody did anything wrong. It's just like, this isn't the right fit. You know, mm-hmm. the whole, like, it's not you, it's me thing. Like, no, it's not either of us. It's yeah. us together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, if you walked up and somebody was trying to... You know, build a house with ingredients that you know don't belong together. Like, hey, yeah, I don't totally. think you can build this house out of acid and uh, concrete. Like, well, that's the pair that I got right now. Like, cool. Well, you should get a different pair. No offense to acid or concrete; they're both amazing. They just need to be in different uh, things. Now, I wonder, taking this perspective into ending relationships, was it just? sunshine and roses right there at the breakup and everybody realizing this thing together like oh it's not it's we're just not working i'd like to think that i made such a compelling case (laughs) that that it kind of like quelled any kind of Mm -hmm. like you know real uh wait let's try to fix this Mm -hmm. you know i think i was i was compelling enough that i was serious about this being the Mm -hmm. end Mm -hmm. uh that you know, the other person was on was on board in the sense that they were like, okay, well, I know this is the real thing, you know. <laughs> and again, like if you're a pretty good person, then there's really no ammunition built up where you're like, well, I hate you because this and, you know, there's not like unsaid stuff if you're communicative the whole time. Hmm. Yeah, so good I, point. I've kind of thought that everybody that I've ever ended things with has, has known it was coming. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and taking it well. Taking it super well, yeah. I'm I'm proud of I'm proud to be friends with everybody I've ever dated. They're all wonderful young cool. ladies. Yeah, not everybody can say such a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to make a self-deprecating joke. I won't. I won't. <laughs> new year, new me. Well, hey, this is. A, I'll, I'll circle back to something you said earlier, which which I'd love to talk about. Um, <clears throat> you were talking about your relationship with uh, your fans and supporters. Um, I, I I bore witness to this. Um, when I went to go check out the Rock by the Sea after party, oh, yeah. which was in a venue, um, but it was very much uh, like a house party vibe. Like, yeah. I could see that the people in the crowd were interacting not only with the people who they came with, but those around them and the other artists who were playing that night. There was a real, a real communal vibe yeah. going on. And I'm wondering, you know, you said you've been doing this since, since you were a kid. Is that something that you've begun to consciously develop as time has gone on? Or have you always tried to have that fans or friends perspective? Yeah, no fourth wall at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely, growing up just as like a super music fan, uh, always read the album credits and always was so disappointed in my favorite bands when they would switch um, 
styles to chase like a music industry mm-hmm. trend mm-hmm. Um, or when they would break up and then you know like have a falling out and break up the band mm-hmm. I always just thought that was so selfish like mm-hmm. you know you guys are multi-millionaires mm-hmm. people love your music like I understand that you guys can't get along anymore that's fine people can fall out but like you can still go to work every day, you know? Hmm. And so that there was, there's always been these things about the music industry that I've, I've like worshiped the industry as a whole, but also just always been totally turned off by, uh, the whole like cool kid mentality and the status grab and, you know, trying to look brooding and mysterious. Like mm-hmm. it just looks exhausting to mm-hmm. me. Unless you are such a thing. Absolutely. But then mm-hmm. you're exhausted because it's so hard for <laughs> you to exist. <laughs> It, when it doesn't seem genuine, it's because it isn't genuine, mm-hmm. and you're just trying to be cool. Uh, and what you think of as cool is like the dude in the corner who just doesn't say anything, you know, just mm-hmm. like attractive, mm-hmm. smokes like 25 packs of cigarettes a mm-hmm. week, and uh, doesn't say much. That dude is just inside his own head, sure, and wishes like hell that he could, you know, crack a joke mm-hmm. in a social setting. And that person, like, you can just always tell that it's authentic. You know, but they're tortured just like we're tortured for talking too much. You know, <laughs> I, you know I get in that entertainer mode and uh-huh. I can't shut up. And I'm like, mm-hmm. later in the night, I'm like, oh my God, you're such a douche. <laughs> just shut up. Yeah, man. Try try uh, having a podcast that you listen back to every now and then. Yeah, let the guests talk. <laughs> more like the fast drag. <laughs> yeah, man. I uh, I definitely set out to, to create a community. And one of my favorite band mm-hmm. in... in middle school and high school was Sister Hazel. Mm-hmm. And I love that style of music. You know, mm-hmm. and, and my stuff is a good bit like that in terms of like instrumentation and vibe. Mm-hmm. But Tom Petty was my hero growing up. And uh, Ken from Sister Hazel, I've, I've gotten to tour with those guys a lot in college and since then. Um, and I've just seen what they have. And they none of them have egos. They're sweethearts. And they're making you know music into their mid to late 40s. Like mm-hmm. they're still going. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have all these fan experiences. They do the Rock Boat Music Festival cruise. They do. Uh, they used to do the Ski Slope, you know, fan experience out in Colorado. They do uh, a thing in Charleston uh, called Hazelnut Hang, and they have Camp Hazelnut. Like it's just hmm. their Hazelnut group. They mm-hmm. service them so well and give them exactly what they want. And they always take pictures and meet people. And like everybody knows everybody in Sister Hazel by their first name Mm. and like they just they're just good people and I always I was like man that's so smart as a business plan Mm -hmm. because those people will stick with you forever even if you're like not playing a great show one night or you make a record they don't love they're still gonna stick with you because they're invested yeah and and that's obviously like you know the colder more industry version of why I liked what they were doing but the bottom line is it was just fun to be around them because mm-hmm. you could tell they were having a good time. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely have always sought uh, to create environments where nobody's left out. Like I want everything I ever do to be inclusionary. And part of that is growing up sure. very overweight and feeling, mm-hmm. you know, totally just, mm-hmm. you know, cast aside and yeah. like I didn't have very much worth. And maybe everybody should grow up like that because it, it just it leads <laughs> you to look for other people who are like that and encourage them. Sure. And especially yeah. now that I've lost like all this weight mm-hmm. and work out now and have like a very healthy lifestyle compared to what I did for my whole life, you know, leading up to this past 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy to, to think about how far I've come just trying every day a little bit harder mm-hmm. and just getting it a little more right every day for a decade. Sure. And now, yeah, it's just, it's, it's insane. I'm glad that you brought up what you brought up uh, with Sister Hazel um, because... You know, I think I think if there's a young musician or a jaded musician or a struggling musician out there who needs to hear something, it is stories like uh, the one you're telling about Sister Hazel, a band that, you know, had a, had a great shot at something and was was an international name for a long time. Yeah, a yeah. lot of '90s bands are like this. Yeah, um, and have and have subsequently gone under the radar, but because they didn't make it so much about the music and their image, and they made it more about what the experience you as a listener will have. Right, the community uh, around it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That makes that makes for something, you know, when you say my cold business side sees that and blah, 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 but, like, that's that's exactly right because you and I as musicians, we know that, like, we could go home tomorrow and write 
the greatest song in the world. <laughs> you know? But that doesn't really matter oh, if yeah, we're total the assholes. Not or we can't well, yeah, yeah. you know, I I I operate outside of the industry and I'm happy to do so. Yeah, like yeah. I don't I don't need anybody telling me or from behind a desk that my songs are good or bad and they're not going to put them out or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I want people who Till are part of Till you get a phone my... call tomorrow and you're like, <laughs> well, like, well, you know, it sounds okay <laughs> when it's on the table. I'd be like, well, show me the check. Let's see. And they're like, oh, there isn't a <laughs> my check. You're like, I'll still do it. for sale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the thing is with a record contract these days, you sell your soul for, for nothing. <laughs> it's just totally. like, mm-hmm. there's no bonus. You already made the record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the real deal. <laughs> yeah. You've already made the record. Although one buddy of mine recently, uh, and this is just one out of many, many buddies who have had labels over the past few years in my life that have not gone well. He, yeah, yeah. He was able to get all of his masters and rights back early, cool. and they paid for another record for him. Dude, that's... And then it just wasn't working out. Was it a out. small label? It was. Like an offshoot? Yeah. yeah. That's a more know. common tale for offshoots because mm-hmm. it's still part of the team that launched the label in the first place Mm -hmm. and they really do still have you know love for for the creators Mm -hmm. it is interesting man just being out here in this town Mm -hmm. um you know i going back to what you said about the struggling artists you know and we're all you know almost all of us that you know are out here writing songs and playing music for a living or not for a living but as their main focus you know, everybody's struggling. It's like the, the you know, the 1% of the top 1% that actually get deals in the first place mm-hmm. and then 1% of them work out. Sure. Um, I was I was reading some metrics the other day about uh, the percentage of bands that get major record deals or offshoot under a big umbrella deals that make a second record with those companies. And it's less than 10% mm-hmm. of any band that gets a deal actually gets to make another record. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, those Sister Hazel guys... They released their first record just themselves. They went to University of Florida in Gainesville, released the first record themselves, toured the southeast in concentric circles back when you could do that with a van and a trailer, and there were built-in crowds at these classic venues. And then, you know, released Somewhere More Familiar, which is their hit record. Like, they made that record themselves. Mm -hmm. And then Universal was like, we want to release this record with you. So, I mean, they already made the record. And then All For You, you know, blows up and Mm -hmm. becomes a number one and gets number one in you know, a bunch of different countries. And uh, you know, they, it was a platinum-selling record that they paid for and made themselves. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't have been platinum, but they would have done okay because mm-hmm. they had a regional fan base. Sure. So Universal signs them to a record deal, quote-unquote, and then releases a record they've already got made, so they don't pay for a record. Uh, and then when they made their second record, Fortress, uh, with Universal, like they made that record with Universal, and then uh, basically it came out and it went gold and they had a couple of radio singles that got some airplay, but then they got dropped um, and then got to take their record with them. So they basically had like half of one album cycle mm-hmm. with a major Man, record deal. that's magical. And had yeah. a number one hit that was international <laughs> mm-hmm. and then walked away uh, with their masters. And then, you know, Chasing Daylight was the record they put out after that. Mm-hmm. in like 2000 or 2002 um that was their first like truly independent release cool and it was just gangbusters man the record mm-hmm. wasn't i think it's their best record mm-hmm. and they just they still kept playing the same exact venues they had been playing for you know a decade already mm-hmm. and it, they were just as full it, they, they experienced no fall off from my experience mm-hmm. and i was going to their shows for mm-hmm. a long time still do um they experienced no fall off for like a decade longer than they had a record deal. Hmm. It was just insane. Like they just kept playing the same venues and they still had management and booking representation, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, they were, they were playing festivals, you know, for another five years uh, to some size and degree uh, and, and getting, you know, playing in front of thousands and thousands of people. Hmm. And still now they do two night stands at the house of blue Chicago, sell it out both nights. Mm-hmm play you know it, their, their strong markets are still just as strong as they ever were sure and it's just it's it's incredible yeah but i just i just stayed hungry and went to shows and was friendly and met people and just kept going back and by at some point like i knew i had met enough people in the sister hazel orbit that i just sent an email when i was like 20 years old uh to open up the house of blues in myrtle beach mm-hmm. and i said that my band you know i was like you know, and I just, I knew who, I knew who the guys were. I knew everybody's name. 
and I knew who booked, and I got mm-hmm. his email address from him one night because I had been there enough times, and just sent an email to their manager, and I was like, hey, we, we'd love to open up. We can bring mm-hmm. a bunch of people to this. Mm-hmm. And we ended up at 20 years old, you know, opening up for Sister Hazel at a sold-out House of Blues. One of the yeah. greatest moments of my life. Yeah. And it was just from staying on the scene and figuring it out, you know, night after night. There was no one to ask advice from. Sure. Just yeah. Where do you want to be? Mm-hmm. Is somebody doing what you want to be doing? Does somebody have the success that you want to have and model yours after? Mm-hmm. Stay close to them. You know. Yeah. I kind of did a similar thing with Need to Breathe after that. Mm. Um, and they they're another one of those with dude, like a very strong cult following. Yeah. Them yeah. Ben Rector. You know, kind of. Mm-hmm. They took Ben Rector out, and Ben has always done well. We use the same producer, Ben and I do. A guy named Chad Copeland out of uh, Norman, Oklahoma. That's where he's from. Mm. And he's produced, you know, some part of every Ben Rector album and the whole thing for three of them, I think. And he's done every Bronze Radio Return record and um, just a bunch of really cool folks. And, um, but yeah, I mean, Ben won the John Lennon songwriting competition with his first single off his first record, Mm, which was huge. And he was just a college kid. And then he released his second record with Chad, uh, something like this. And it sold hundreds of thousands of copies just from like... And he's kind of, I call it Sneaky Jesus, the uh, like the Christian but not overtly Christian music. Hmm. You know, and people in that world who I really respect are like, you know, Steve Mochler, Ben Rector, Matt Wertz, Dave Barnes. Um, that It's just kind of this world that kind of, they dip into both, mm-hmm. which is so cool. If you can do that, if that's really where your genuine heart is, and I think it is for these guys, mm-hmm. you're talented and you have just enough like wholesome, you know, religion uh, to make your mainstream songs hmm. palatable for, you know, the more conservative crowd. And then you also have a couple of songs on each record that are kind of more praise and worshipy. So they play these huge churches, they play these hmm. Christian festivals, they get played on Christian radio, regular radio, college radio. It's just it just it leads to so many more avenues. Hmm. Which is another smart business plan, but Yeah, if you got it in you. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And it has to be genuine. People can spot, you know, somebody who's not being genuine a mile away in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I could wear a pair of sunglasses, you know, and if I felt weird going out on stage in these sunglasses, everyone would pick up on them. Like, like if you look in the mirror, in the mirror and you go like, I don't know if I can pull these off. You can't pull those off. But if you put them on, you're like, whatever, I'm doing this. No one will say a word. It's so funny how that <laughs> works, man. You, there's just like an aura that you decide like this is going to be good. And then you go out there and it's good. Mm-hmm. But if you're worried about it, you should go ahead, you know. Perception is reality. Yeah. Yeah. Lose the act. Lose the fake accent, you know. Mm -hmm. I like Brett Eldridge Eldridge so much because he's, you know, he's just an uh, Illinois guy who came down here, and he has an amazing voice, but he sings country music because he likes it. Mm -hmm. But he has no, like, southern draw or anything. Mm -hmm. And I just, I respect that he's never tried to, like, adopt a fake one. Mm -hmm. He still talks like himself, so he sounds like he's just a Midwestern guy. Sure. And then when he sings, there's a little bit of a, a twang to it, but... yeah. But he's not he's not trying to be something that he's not. Right. Which is great. He doesn't dress like with the you know, cowboy hat and like the patches on his shoulder, you know, uh shoulder pads. There are lots of but you know, at at the same time, like I'm one hundred percent with you. I don't like to see something that's that's inauthentic. Yeah. Unfortunately and maybe fortunately, I can't remember this country singer's name. Big big country star, but he's from California. Like yeah. Northern California, a little bit inland from the Bay, almost the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. But I remember I, when I first moved to town, I went to go see uh, a label showcase where they were taking all of their biggest stars and having them come out and sing a song. Yeah. And this guy comes out, and they were like, hailing from wherever California, here's right. this dude to come sing a song. And I'm like, oh, cool, California dude. Let's see what he's got. He's like, hey, y'all. Uh, I'm from California, you know, like he just comes out, starts talking and singing yeah, like that. Over the top. But he's a huge star, yeah, and people man. love him. Yeah, well, he was There's in the right place. There's exceptions to right every time. rule, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, but I'm with you, man. You gotta the the more you that you can be, the better the better time you'll have in life. You know, I think some people just have uh, have an easier time feeling comfortable in their own skin and defining who they are and and reinforcing that. I don't know how much of an easier time you'll have, but yeah, definitely. I think a moment happens for all people where they realize the hard truth that is 
all your worth in this world mm. is exactly who you are and what mm. you can be. You'll mm-hmm. never be able to fake your way into success Truly. that's lasting in anything. Mm-hmm. So really, I mean, like, you know, if you're uncomfortable in your own skin, uh, I think that's totally normal. But ask yourself some questions like, why? What don't you like about yourself? And if it's like, you know, something that you can't do anything about, then, you know, obviously you got to figure out a way to deal with that. Right. But I, I will say that, you know, I mean, like Jennifer Gray from Dirty Dancing, uh, you know, beautiful girl, hated her nose, got a nose job, and people can't even recognize her anymore. You know, she stopped getting work because she lost her, like, trademark. Mm. And so it's like, you know, you can't really trust yourself too much on, uh, I don't know, you got to be cautious about changing things. Because mm. you, you really, you're not looking for 10 million people to like you and think you're okay. You're looking for like 10,000 people to love you and get down forever, you know, mm. and be like, this is my guy. Mm-hmm. You know, you, uh, I always kind of talk about how Taylor Swift, I love Taylor Swift. Like, I think her stuff is so catchy and fun, and she's teaming up with great producers and writers, and most of her stuff I really enjoy. And, you know, but like Shake It Off is a great hit song, mm-hmm. you know, and then, uh, that song's never saved someone's life. You know, it's it's a hip hop song. Sure. And that's a really cool thing to aspire to, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's like a deep cut Ryan Adams song mm. that has literally saved someone's life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just kind of ask myself, well, which career do you want? Do you want the Taylor Swift, huge international acclaimed pop star? Or do you want to be a guy who makes pretty good money uh, and is like a darling among his peers? Mm-hmm. You know, like that's the musician's musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the respect of everybody who's in your field and your songs are very esoteric. You're going to have less listeners and less notoriety and fame, but your impact is going to be so deep on the people that are with you. Sure. And so that's kind of a, you know, a thing I try to ask myself is like, man, do you really want to go to this party and pretend that you don't totally disapprove of like half the people that are there? Mm-hmm. Or do you want to stay home, you know, and Maybe one of your buddies drops by and you guys really chop some stuff up and have a great conversation, mm-hmm. you know, figure out some things. Um, you know, and I still go and, and, and be try to be social at those things because um, of networking and, and, and all that stuff. But I really, I, I think that I would be, I think if you're a self-examiner like you are and you have a high level of intelligence, I think it would be very hard to lead a life that uh, in which you were a superstar. Because <laughs> so many, so many decisions are made for you, mm. and so many, uh, just almost policies, you know, in your brand happen to you instead of happening because of you or or you setting them into motion. Sure. And I just don't think, um, you know, if you're just happy to be there, and you're like, yeah, sure, I'll cut those songs. You know, yeah, I'll go play this place, or I'll play this fundraiser for this person that I don't really. You know, if you're really paying attention to things mm-hmm. and your label says, oh, we got to go do this thing. And you're like, I'm not going to play in this country. Their, you know, human rights record is terrible. I don't want to reward their government by letting them bring me in. You know, all kinds of situations I can think of off the top of my head that I would totally lose my deal by being like, sure. I'm not going to do that. There's no way you can make me. And they'd be like, yeah, you're right. But we can also drop you. Mm. <laughs> you know, Begs the question, though. You, you know, you've played so many shows at this point. Do you know how many shows you've played? I do not. It seems like you're on the road a lot and have been for a long time. Long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm... Yeah, I'm, I'm driving about 60,000 miles a year. Crazy, Playing man. between 150 and 200 shows that's a year. That's across the country like 20 times. Across country and back. Yeah, I guess be, that's true. Isn't that around 6,000? If you go from like Maine to L.A. or some shit? Yeah, I think, yeah. But, okay, so have you played... Have you played any shows that sort of um, set off your ethical senses, but you didn't quite have the experience or the or whatever? You didn't recognize it at the time, perhaps played those shows and saw it in retrospect. Be like, now I know that there are you know things to look out for or gut checks to have before I play a show. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, especially early on, you're just trying mm-hmm. to take opportunities as they arise. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's why some of our most celebrated, like, female actors um, have, you know, early in their careers, they've, they've gone on to win Academy Awards and be very serious actors. And, like, the idea of, you know, some, some of our most esteemed female actors now, like, the idea of Annette Benning uh, being, like, naked in a B-movie is asinine. Like, mm. you, can't, you can't 
place that in your head. Like that just seems so outside of her character. But a lot of them early in their careers did take roles mm-hmm. where it was like a Skinamax late night mm-hmm. movie type of, you know, situation sure. where you had to be topless, you know, just to get the role. And, uh, you know, you had to do whatever they did, whatever they had to do to get in the door to then start making the types of films that they wanted to make. I'm so excited to hear the rest of this story. If this is how you're setting out the example. <laughs> no, I just Where made, did you play naked, bro? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I just, you know, I, I think that's the case for anybody in any entertainment industry. Because, you know, so most other industries, there's a clear cut, like, this is how you get into this. You go to school, mm. this school, you sure. get this degree. Yeah. You talk to this person and they, you know, you enter this pipeline that leads to you being a doctor or whatever it is. Uh, but with any entertainment business, business, it's just, uh, it's like a four-lane interstate with walls built up around it. Mm-hmm. And all you can do <clears throat> is get up to speed somehow on the outside and then just ride alongside the traffic mm-hmm. and then hope there's a crack in the wall that you can kind of like break through. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, hope somebody reaches over and grabs you because they see how well you're doing out here. And they're like, man. oh, they should be in here with us. That's a, that's a stressful and accurate analogy. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. But, but, yeah, so I think you do whatever you got to do to, to get some shows and to mm-hmm. make some connections. And so I, I'm sure there's stuff from early on, shows that I played for, you know, like charities or whatever. And you don't even ask. You know, you just take the show. Mm. And then you realize that you've, you know, played like the opposite, you know, an opposite political parties, like, you mm. know state level fundraiser or something and you start digging in and you're like, Oh, this guy actually sucks. <laughs> I'm ashamed that I took that, you know. Did you see I think it was Third Eye Blonde, they got hired for a GOP party a few years ago. Yeah. And they just took the stage time to talk shit. Oh cool. The whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well you gotta read your contracts, man. <laughs> That's good advice too. Yeah. Chappelle I mean did a similar thing like crowd in cincinnati was giving him a hard time a couple oh, years yeah. ago mm-hmm. and he was like do y'all think that i have to do stand-up tonight to get paid <laughs> i have to be <laughs> out here on this mic for 45 minutes and like you know if you guys want to keep heckling me and shouting over my punchlines that's mm. fine i'll just stand up here mm. for the and he does he just like gets his e-cig out and just chills and people are shouting stuff and he's responding to him very casually wow but he's just like Y'all came to see me and paid money. Why would you want to blow my show up? <laughs> like, this is the price you pay now. You won't be getting refunds because I played my contractual obligation. I'll get paid regardless, you know. And I thought it was beautiful, man. Just great crowd control. Mm-hmm. A little chaos involved, but also he explained it. So I'm sure the people who were going to, like, really pitch a fit were like, actually, that all checks out. <laughs> I think I think Dave Chappelle might be right about this. Yeah, so read your contracts, kids. Yeah. I imagine you, especially lately, because um, how long have you been Steve Everett? Uh, I've been solo since 2011. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's plenty of time. So I'd imagine the last couple of years then you've seen less and less than that. And there's been more and more of that everybody's hanging out together vibe. Like we're, we're, yeah. we're on the Steve bus and this is, this is our show. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, you know, it's just led to... Um, you know, I had an investor pay for my first full-length record hmm. in 2011, uh, and he just, I mean, he was just an angel, and, you know, that's how I got my first record out, and then started touring, you know, trying to kind of lean on the same fans I'd had for my first two bands, and let everybody know that this was the new thing, um, but, you know, you can't really do that till you put the record out, because otherwise people don't know, like, what your hmm. solo project is going to be like, sure. they haven't decided if they're going to, you know, jump ship from your old band and mm-hmm. come with you, Um and so, yeah, I mean, I did that, and then, you know, so by now I've got three full-length records and three EPs in between those, and, you know, like, I've I've toured, I've played all 48 contiguous states, and I've just kind of figured out, you know, what I do and don't want to do now. That's right, you had those you had those people. Anytime somebody says I've done all the states, my first places I think of are North and South Dakota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've got some serious people out there Dude, in North and South Dakota. Those are good folks. That's crazy. Those are, yeah. those are homies, for sure. <laughs> uh, plus, it's good to know people in states that are just trying to kill you, you know? When you go through, like, Montana, North and South mm-hmm. Dakota, mm-hmm. like, depending on what time of year it is, like, 80 mile an hour gusts of wind in an open plane... Uh, all kinds of animals that you're not used to being around and the winter will just like bury you with snow it's there's bison like there's there's a lot of it's like being in the outback when you're in certain places up there so mm-hmm. it's good to have folks who can be like hey hey, hey don't 
don't do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to come stand behind me. And I'm like, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Now we were we were chatting a little bit the other day, and I want to I want to I want to just make it clear to any of your people who are listening that you're not going off the road anytime soon. You're not quitting this anytime soon. No, certainly not. But I would imagine that you've got a few things in mind to uh, to fill out your business in terms of its strengths. You know, things that you want to explore to expand Steve Everett Inc. That uh, that doesn't involve touring. What are some of those things? Yeah. Well, I'll always, uh, I'll always play shows. Sure. Like I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll always write that's songs. That's why I wanted to say that yeah, yeah. beforehand. Because that, that's my favorite thing on the planet mm-hmm. is, is writing songs and then playing those songs for people. Like I, I would be a really terrible version of myself if I didn't get to do that mm-hmm. on a regular basis and for new people. You know, like that's part mm. part of me is like a, I mm-hmm. feel like more of an entertainer than sure, anything. sure, sure. And I really, I just, I need like a room, like I really do. Like I'm so dependent. I think that's the relationship mm. uh, between me and the people who like my stuff mm-hmm. is like, hey, do you like this? Does this speak to you? Do you need this music to continue? Cool, because I need it to continue as well. Mm. You know, so we like equal parts. I mean, truly equal, because like one cannot exist without the other. Yeah. And, you know, people who can't play, there's like innovators and appreciators when it comes to music. Sure. And, I mean, holy crap, one is definitely not more important than the other. Hmm. And you could argue that one's more rare than the other. Mm -hmm. But, honestly, like, the idea of writing an amazing song, for me, is totally, would be totally wasted if I thought I could not share it with people. Mm-hmm. Which I I know a lot of musicians are. Interesting, They make the music for themselves. Mm -hmm. But mine is totally totally like oh man this is gonna be a great moment Hmm. like i know i'll get like a whoop here Hmm. or this will be really fun to play live if i write it like this then the band can hit right here and that'll come off well Hmm. so it's Mm -hmm. totally you know immersed in the experience for the for the people who come to the shows yeah still still hesitating to call them fans still can't do it (laughs) Uh, but it's so cool that you uh that that's one of the ways by which you frame your writing yeah, that's a really really cool thing, you know. In an answer to what you just said, I am working on a project right now that is very much writing and recording for me. Like, of course, I'm sharing it, and I want people to like it, and I want people to relate to it. But yeah. one of the things that that I set out to do when I started the slow drag was I want to make something that like 16 year old me would put in my car and blast in the high school yeah, parking man. lot. That's exactly how I feel about mm-hmm. my stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's the frame through which I'm looking at this music here. Well, good, because that's all you can ever count on. Sure. Your own absolutely. opinion is basically mm-hmm. all you'll ever be able to really trust. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody else, it's a gamble. You mm-hmm. know, you take an amalgam of a bunch of different people's opinions. Yeah. And maybe if they're all overwhelmingly against what you're thinking about doing, maybe then you should pay attention. But, but and you'll be able to tell. Yeah, it's usually either, a mixed either bag. Either in the listening then, room or while you're playing. Yeah, exactly. And that's another thing. Like, you know, I can think a song is super good, mm-hmm. but never... Man, hardly ever play it and not put it on a record because mm-hmm. like I'll try it out in some sets and people are just like not feeling it. Mm-hmm. You know? Man, almost every writer I've had some version of this conversation with on the podcast has said yeah. something like that. Like, I've got this song that I wrote or I one time wrote this thing that I thought was just the best thing yeah. ever. And yeah. nobody really, nobody got into it the way I did. But then the other day, I, you know, I like farted out this song in five minutes just for fun, yeah, dude. just for a smile. And it's like everybody's fave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You never know. Right. Well, and, and people ask, you know, hit singer-songwriters, like, man, do you ever get tired of playing that song from 12 mm-hmm. years ago that was a hit? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is anything but no, then you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I guess I do mean that. Because, I mean, you know, if you wrote a hit song, mm-hmm. it made you wealthy, mm-hmm. especially from back in the day. Right. Like, you're a wealthy person, mm-hmm. and it's led you... Uh, to a path where you can, you know, take more risks and you can do more of what you love. Sure. Like you owe your whole livelihood to that one song. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've got a couple of songs, you know, just on a, a very small, you know, example of that whole vibe. Um, the first single from my first solo record is one of my most successful songs ever. And I wrote it so quick. It was a Valentine's Day present for a girl I was dating because mm-hmm. I was broke. Oh, wow. And it's just, it's a really simple chorus and I wrote it so quickly. 
and it's I play it every show, and I never get tired of playing it. And like mm. I've played it so many years that all my buddies and other artists that I tour with and other bands, you know, they've learned it because I played it every show. And so now it's this thing where like any band that I play with, if I've toured with them before, I'm like, hey man, do you want to come up for the you know the last song cool. and do West Coast Time? And people are like, yeah, yeah, got mm-hmm. it. I'll never forget it because it, it's simple. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't I don't need I don't really care if you like you know, one of my songs for the lyrical content, for the melody, for the production, or just for the, like, the vibe that you get from it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need you to hit, I, I think with entertainment, people decide if they like you or not, and it's, you can check, you just have to check a certain number of boxes, and they mm-hmm. can be one of a million different boxes. Oh, yeah. You know, and so I, I really, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that, mm-hmm. and so if I write a song that I think is you know, incredible for me, or it represents an achievement, like another rung in the ladder of songwriting that I've climbed. Um, if I, if I kind of know that other people don't dig it, um, then I will just kind of let that be for me. And mm-hmm. what it, what it ends up being mm-hmm. is it's a very personal song. Sure. And, you know, sometimes I'll still release those as like a deep cut on a record and you'll get a couple of messages like, oh man, I was dealing with this exact same thing. I know exactly what this is about, mm-hmm. but I really do. I, I value mm-hmm. Um, I value being able to connect with um, everybody who likes my stuff. Um, I, I still, it's still esoteric enough that like, you know, it's not going to be that mass appeal uh, mm-hmm. thing. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I, I don't want to paint that in dark picture in a dark light, but mm-hmm. um, I really do like for the, if you, if you like my stuff, I want all of my stuff to be accessible to you. Sure. And so I, I try to be sensitive to that, which is a more business minded way to think about your you know, your songs is like, well, this is one of 12 products that I'll be selling for the next two years. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't really think about it like that in literal terms, but the way That's I act interesting. seems like it does get thought about like that. I mean, I say this with a little bit of caution, you know, <laughs> we're both musicians. Yeah, At the yeah. end of the day, music is what got us into what we're doing. Yeah, yeah But, yeah. you know, every now and then I look at a song as sort of like uh, <clears throat> something that that is that is ancillary to the business, you yeah. Know, circling back to like what we were talking about with with community and the vibe and selling an experience to people, even if you know you reframe it to like the experience you'll get by listening to the song or the experience you'll get by right. coming to the show or whatever. Sometimes I feel like the song is is there to serve the personality of the of the singer or the band or yeah. the vibe or something like that. Certainly. You know, it's like this it's not really this, but it's the way that we present it and how you feel while you're receiving it. Yeah. Like that that and that's that's what we're selling now. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And sometimes it is the song. But I find like when you're when you focus more uh on what the song creates as right. the driving force of your business. And that's that's probably a better way of, of thinking about what the whole thing I just said. Hmm. Uh it's yeah. It's basically like it, when I find one of those songs that means a lot to me, mm-hmm. but I notice that it's not really getting picked up on by folks at shows and stuff, I'll I'll examine it. I'll step back and examine it, and I'll be like, okay, well, mm-hmm. your tone, your voice, like as an artist, the type of stuff that you talk mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. what people have come to like love about my stuff, if mm-hmm. they do love it, mm-hmm. um, is this like this specific message lane, sure, you know, and, yeah, and then yeah, I'll yeah. realize like, oh, this song, the reason it, it falls outside of that messaging lane. Mm-hmm. And so this one maybe is just for me yeah. or, you know, just something that I'll pull out in a writer's round when it's a bunch of heavy headed people mm-hmm. who really mm-hmm. want to feel like crap for <laughs> yeah. four minutes. Yeah. Cause your tunes are pretty fun. Yeah. They're I try pretty to carefree, you know, Tom Petty's my hero, man. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got, you've got, you've got enough of that craft in you, like from having written song after song after song yeah, to yeah. where, <laughs> no, where people are that. probably going to enjoy most of the things that they hear, but it's an interesting thing to to then be confronted as a songwriter, as a human being who also writes songs and has right. this large spectrum of emotions to draw from, to have to stop and realize like, oh, these songs aren't for the stage, even if they mean so much to me. Yeah. You know, but it's like, this is exactly what needs to go on stage. I got them all. They're ready to go. Right. They make everybody happy and feel good, which is right. what I'm, which is, you know, this is my, this is my McDonald's. Like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be selling these non-hamburger items yeah, at yeah. my McDonald's. Well, and you can flip it too. I mean, you mm-hmm. can say this is my hey, five-star. Hey, great burger pun, by the way. That was great. <laughs> 
<laughs> accidental. Uh, sorry to steal your punder. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you could say like, you could flip it and say, this is my five-star restaurant. And like, mm. I, I just happened to get this really cool slider recipe, but mm. I probably don't need to be making sliders at my five-star mm-hmm. restaurant. Yeah. You know, I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like the in the aggregate, like the majority of the songs that I write do fit into that. Mm-hmm. I just think at some point, you know, you, you can't be... You can't be a mom and pop Walmart. Like that it just sure. doesn't work. You know, yeah. like if I had a major record deal, like Zach Brown has decided that he's just gonna chase whatever he wants to do. And his fans will stick with him. They mm-hmm. will. But he's done like the Sir Roosevelt project, which is pop EDM, and then his new record he just put out as Zach Brown band, I mean, is very like uh has a lot of electronic, hmm. you know, elements to it. Mm-hmm. And it is way more pop. He's singing with very little draw and it's a totally different style of music. Um and I think that's cool. And if you have a major record deal and they want to buy in with you, then they can, you know, you can you can rebrand yourself and reinvent. Um, but I, I think it's it's tough when you're like an up and coming artist. Hmm. It just gets confusing. Like it gets really hard. Oh well, sure. You just get such less access to folks in general. Mm-hmm. And so I think you really do need to be very specialized. Mm-hmm. You know, which makes sense. Like a boutique firm of any sure. kind, you're going to think of as like, oh, these people do this thing really well. And they don't do anything else. They probably do. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, you have to become a huge company or a huge success to right. be like, also, I do this other thing and people care. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's kind of where I, the decision making process I use for, for tunes. And that's, you know, something in that is the other side of the coin uh, in terms of what you were saying about someone like Taylor Swift, a huge star. Yeah. You know, yes, she's got someone and people like her, celebrities, have, you know, people planning their days and telling them to show up here and wear this and say that. Right. But those people, like, know what they're doing. Yeah, you certainly. Know? At a certain I don't know level. how many hours you've spent <laughs> over the last few years trying to figure something out to yeah. market yourself or create this thing oh, that you God. need as a musician or just yeah. general research or trying to whatever new things you have to try. It's like when you can, you you can hire the boutique as a, as a smaller artist, as a growing artist. Right. But most of the time, yeah. you have to do all of those things. So when you are right. in the presence of or, or working, collaborating with someone who really knows what they're doing, it's, it's yeah. an amazing thing. Oh, it's refreshing. Mm-hmm. And, and I always say like, there's no topic of conversation that I don't love if the person that is bringing it up is knowledgeable and passionate mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. it. Totally. Like, I had an amazing conversation. I'll never forget uh, with a guy in Pittsburgh because he ran a fish hatchery. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everybody was just like snooze fest. And they're like, oh, Uncle Doug's talking about his fish hatchery business again. And I was like, dude, tell me all about sure. this. Sure, yeah. Because he was so excited about it. And he was mm-hmm. like, well, this is what we do. And this is how we get the fish in and out. Mm-hmm. And like, this is, uh, I have some pictures on my phone. You know, yeah. and I was like, Uncle Doug, let's go outside and smoke a cigar. Yeah, totally. Tell me about your fish hatchery. Yeah, there is something about being confronted with with someone who is both passionate and knowledgeable yeah. that is invigorating and exciting. Oh it makes you want to talk to them and ask them questions. It's a really cool thing. Yeah. It's part of the reason why I do this. Right. You know, it's like I'm talking to mostly musicians, so we'll be able to like shop talk here and there. Yeah. But iron sharpening every iron. now and then <laughs> yeah. every now and then I uh you know, I bring in somebody who is not a musician, doesn't yeah, doesn't do anything like it. And it's always a cool a cool thing to discover something about a stranger's world, especially when they can paint that world so colorfully right Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely well you know you almost get jealous yeah (laughs) grass is always greener yeah it's everywhere you get jealous of that every two-week paycheck (laughs) that's a government job too so i was like man you gotta yeah you know i've had both days in the past week week and a half where i'll i'll wake up and be sort of uh depressed or feel defeated or anxious like i have too much to do or like I'm jealous of somebody else's life or whatever but then I've also had those days like you and I we've we've done something that on the one hand living in Nashville it seems like a great many people have done yeah. but when you look on a on a national level to like not only make a career out of out of something that you make your art to to do that is difficult enough but to yeah. do it and maintain it through through victories and losses, through you know, yeah. through hills and valleys, like that's it's 
it's a really, really difficult thing. And I, and I, yeah. I like to, I like to just say that when definitely. I can to definitely. people, for you to hear, for the people at home to hear. Yeah. Um, cause it's. <sighs> when you see, you see it play out, like, mm-hmm. you know, you moved to town in your early twenties for, for mm-hmm. a lot of us. Yeah. And then late twenties, all of a sudden mm-hmm. you start to see less and less people still doing mm-hmm. it. And then 30 is this massive clean out. Everybody mm-hmm. freaks out, mm-hmm. you know, if they're going to. Yeah. And it's almost like the music industry just kind of like waits. You know, like <laughs> they'll pick you up at like 18 to be a heartthrob mm-hmm. or a pop star. Mm-hmm. But then every other facet of the music industry is like, I'm going to wait and see if this person is still around after 30. Yeah. And then by that time, they'll have a back catalog and I'll know exactly what kind of commodity they are, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. as yeah. somebody to pick up. Mm-hmm. And that, that seems to be playing out quite a bit, especially in like the uh, songwriter Americana country world. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, and it kind of gives you hope. There's, there's still actors who, you know, get their big break Mm -hmm. as 50 year old men playing, you know, like a, an old husband or like a young grandpa, you know, and then go on like Paul Giamatti, Mm -hmm. you know, wasn't acting and stuff as a young man. Yeah. And I'm sure thought it was. Same with Peter Dinklage. Yeah. Peter Dinklage. I think he started around his mid thirties. I don't, yeah, I don't know, but he's fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, you stuff that your whole life you're like, man, I'm short, like Paul Giamatti. Mm-hmm. We we respect him and revere him. He's an incredible actor. Seems like a great guy too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm sure he went through the same struggles that we all do where, you know, societally, I'm sure he was like, I'm short, I'm overweight, I'm prematurely bald. You know, like I, I'm not like a Casanova, like I'm not going to get to be in stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and he still chased his dream. And then, you know, you, you turn 50 and then... All of a sudden, people are like, oh, do you want to play like a, a kind of overweight, bald, you know, sort of unfortunate looking person? Right. And he was like, yes, yeah. I do. Yeah. Also, I will nail that, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it turns into this beautiful thing. So I, I definitely think there's always hope. Um, yeah. But, you know, kind of circling back to a few things, definitely the music does need to be enough. Like I, I set myself free when I realize that I have these four keys and I do them every day. And it's... It's just set me free. Like, I'm mm. a happy guy. I feel like I've made it because uh, 12-year-old me thinks mm-hmm. that I'm a, like an intergalactic rock star. Mm-hmm. Like, I own a car outright. Mm-hmm. That's 265,000 miles. Dude, that thing you drove up here is not a car. Oh, that's, no. So this is a Sprinter. <laughs> yeah, man. This is a side hustle. I'm, I'm, I'm just driving a Sprinter to Charlotte tomorrow and then flying home. Oh, okay. oh yeah. man! Because you drove up in that thing. I moved to town with a with an E one fifty like okay. as my primary vehicle. It was a Ford Econoline one fifty, which That's is right. the smallest engine, the cheapest van. <laughs> but it's still pretty big. It's a van. Yeah. <laughs> man. Okay. Good. That makes me feel so much better no, to know that Nissan that's not your Versa daily hatchback. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I've got the Toyota version. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah dude. I, I bought it brand new in two thousand fourteen. Mine's a two thousand fourteen too. Is it? Yeah. Dude, well, I've got 265,000 miles on mine. Wow. Putting like average wow. fifty five to 60,000 a year. It's so funny, dude, because I, you know, I my music business is based mostly at home. Yeah. Fill up my tank one and a half times a month, maybe, yeah. you know, and I've, I, yeah. I have yet to break 100,000. Jeez. That's, I'm, I'm at like 70. I drive more than anybody I know who, like... <laughs> Yeah, I don't think anybody drives their personal car as much oh, as. Oh, lots of people. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a good thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean that's why I bought a car that gets forty miles to the gallon. Mm-hmm. For God's sake, mm-hmm. and it's a hatchback. You can just stuff stuff in there. Yeah, but yeah, man. I I'm I'm trying to. I hate it when I listen. I, I'm a huge podcast junkie. Cool. And uh, I hate it when people, you know, just get to talking and don't, like, circle back and answer questions that were say it. So I've been trying to keep track. Uh, you were talking about other, like, endeavors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoops. The conversation's not over, guys. We had to split this one into two parts. But don't worry, both parts are available today. Just keep on listening to hear the rest of the conversation with Steve. 